0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to
1: oneandall.media. Jesus was fully human and dependent on his relationship with the Father to accomplish the Father's purposes in life, which was what? Redemption and revelation. So that the power of relationship and dependency on God through prayer and humility accomplished more than you and I could ever imagine. You see, here's the problem. We want power without the prayer. We want revival without relationship. and We want the spirit without spit. Today. Today. Today.
0: Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. I'm Aaron and I'm excited to hear another message from Pastor Jeff in our series titled Fortunate, where Pastor Jeff has another tough question for us asking, what are we sacrificing? Let's get into this message now. He's reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8.
1: Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8. Really want to encourage you to follow along. Uh, Last week, we began with two questions. So take a deep breath, okay? Determine that you're going to lean in on this message. What I mean by that is determine that some of it's going to be a little bit hard, a little bit difficult, but you're going to lean in. And if you'll do the hard work of really thinking through this, I know some of you are tired, you've had a long day. Okay, so what? Think hard. You know, you can think hard when you need to, but you got to go with me on this little journey of thought, and it's going to take some effort on your part. You know, like I said, I don't want to just be a PEZ dispenser. You know, where I just dispense information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want you to have to think through some things. So last week I began with the question: What are you doing with your life? What are you doing with everything that God has given you? Did you answer that? Did you take the time? Well, what am I doing with my talents and my my intellect and my resources? And we talked about, we showed how we are all blessed. We are vessels of something that God is doing very special in this world. The second question I ask you after we determine that we are the ones who are blessed, we're the rich ones in the Bible, I ask you, are you ready for what's next? Since we have been blessed so much, is there a day of accountability? Do we have some sense of responsibility? Are we living theocentrically, a God-centered life, or is it egocentrically where it's really all about us and we do Well, we do a little bit over here to appease God, but basically our life is about us. Now, I've got two more questions, two brand new questions. At first, they'll seem like they're not related, but they are. Here's the first one. How do you know that your God is the real God? I was asked that once at a Fellowship Christian Athletes event. A young man came up and said, Jeff, how do you know your God? How do we know our God's the real God? So, Unfortunately, the answer he had gotten from his pastor and church friends was incredibly insufficient because it went along these lines, well, you just feel that he is. You feel that he's the God, the real God. You just feel it inside. You've heard me say in some countries, in some countries they love their neighbors, in other countries they eat them, both on the basis of feeling. Feeling can't determine, how you feel can't determine what is objectively true. Somebody else had told him, well, God told me. Well, that's good that God told you he's the real God, but that doesn't do me any good at all. That's something that you've heard, but I can't make that normative for me. The only answer to that question is, the only way that you know that the God you serve is the real God is if that God has revealed himself some way to you. And it can't merely be through subjectivity. There has to be some kind of objectivity, The word of God. So if somebody asks me that question now, I usually say, Well, we know that God, the God we serve, is the real God because God revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, validated through his resurrection. So if there's no resurrection, we're on thin ice. So somewhere along your life's journey, you have to determine whether or not the resurrection is an actual historical event or not. If it's not, you're wasting your time. You're no better than anybody else, you're just guessing. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, that means he can be trusted. And God has revealed to us the person of Jesus Christ and the resurrection through the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. That's why the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of our faith. With it, there's everything. Without it, there's nothing. That's how you know that the God you serve is the real God. That he revealed himself in Christ. Jesus rose from the dead, validated his existence, his deity by overcoming death. Now here's the second question, they're related. But what is God like? If you were to talk to my wife Robin and you were to say, "What is Jeff like?" She would probably say these things. She'd say, "Well, he's tall, somewhat dark, and very handsome." <laughs> no. She would probably It's not that funny. She would probably say something like this. He's tall, he's athletic, he's sometimes self-absorbed, often narcissistic. Clueless and always a hypochondriac. That's how, honestly, that's how she would describe me. And that's how you describe most men, right? Wives. The question is can we know what God is like the same way that Robin knows what I'm like? And the answer is yes, because Jesus came down not only to redeem, but to reveal to us what God is like. So in creation, we discover the attributes of God. In Jesus, we discover the personality of God if God were to become a person. Now, think for a moment. Keep going down this path. We've said that all of history is his story, and his story is creation, the fall, and redemption. Everything has to be interpreted on that foundation. Creation, God created, the fall, and then redemption. So all of history is God's redemptive story, and in that redemptive story, that's where we learn, it is written on the pages of Scripture, who God is and what God is really like. Now, no passage in the Bible, in my opinion, tells us more about what God is like and what He values more than Philippians 2 5 through 8. Now, I'm gonna read it to you. If we don't learn the Scripture during this message, we might as well not show up. This is the important part of the message. The Bible tells us that Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, the Greek word is hupoarche. It's a word that means or uh, it includes two ideas under and beginning. It's the word used for essence. So remember, I told you that Greek is a very precise language, so we don't have to guess. So the Bible's telling us that in essence, underneath, Jesus exists. In the form of God. Form is the Greek word morphe. Morphe means an outward manifestation of an inward reality. So God doesn't have flesh, but whatever God looks like, Jesus looks exactly like that. He looks like God because he is God. Okay, this is a crucial, crucial text. So Jesus, who in essence from the very beginning existed in the form. An outward manifestation of who he is on the inside, he looks like God because he is God, did not consider equality with God. Equality is the word isos. Isos is a Greek word that means exact equivalence. Uh, An uh, isosceles triangle is called that because it has two equal sides. So he did not consider equality exact equalness in every way. With God, something to be grasped. The Greek word is "harpogmas." which means to be held onto by force. And then the Bible says, rather he emptied himself. Now, the Greek word emptied is kanao. Kanao means to empty yourself completely. But notice he empties himself. Someone on the outside doesn't force him to empty, but it is a voluntary setting aside. It's a self-emptying. Now, what did he empty? By taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Stay with me. Likeness is the Greek word homoioma. I'll bring all this together now, keep going. And homoioma means that whatever likeness he took, it includes more than just the outward appearance. He became like men in every way. And being found in appearance, which now we come uh, to the Greek word schema. Morphe means outward manifestation of an inward reality. But schema is also translated often form. Here it's translated appearance, but form would be accurate as well. It just doesn't want to confuse you. But schema means an outward form that changes. So let me say it again. Morphe, an outward manifestation of an inward reality. Schema, an outward form that is changing and shifting. Essence, morphe cannot change. But schema can change. So the essence of Jesus, his form, is God. That cannot change. I am human in essence. No matter what I do, I'll always be human. Jesus is God in essence. No matter what he does, he'll always be God. However, he willingly set aside something when he came to earth. Now, I just gave you in about five minutes Christian doctrine. What is it that Jesus set aside when he came to earth? This is important. He didn't set aside his essence. He's God. But he did set aside something. And kenao means, basically, that all the things that are that accompany divine authority, omnipotence, all-powerful, omniscience, all-knowing, omnipresence, everywhere, no limitation, all of those things that accompanied divine authority, he willingly, before he left heaven, set them aside and came to earth. In essence, he's still God, but all those things that come and are part and parcel to being God were set aside that he might be human in the likeness of men. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because you and I need to know the one word that describes God better than any other word. Now, you could say love, yes, but that's his nature. You could say humility, yes, that's his nature. But what action word reveals to us what God is like, and in turn, as we understand what the Bible teaches about what God is like, if we ever hope to write the same story in our lives that God has already written in the world, we have to mimic whatever that one word is, that action word is. And this is so important because deep inside, here's what happens to most of us. When you hear a pastor say that Jesus sacrificed, you don't say it out loud, but you do say it. And I know that because so do I. You start to think and you say, wait a minute, what, what sacrifice did Jesus really make? He was God. How on earth can Jesus be compared to my life? I'm not God, my temptations are real. Are you telling me that Jesus was tempted sexually? Are you telling me that he wasn't tempted to take what didn't belong to him? He wasn't tempted? Was he tempted to pursue wealth and convenience over poverty and sacrifice? Did he actually become frustrated, angry, and anxious like I do? Was he ever sad or depressed? Does he know what it's like to be hungry, tired, and poor? I do, and the answer to that is yes, 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 and yes. Because to be human is to experience all of these things. Yeah, but Pastor Jeff... You said in essence he was God and that's an unfair advantage and here's why you think that. So when I was having anxiety disorder, my doctor gave me this wonderful little pill called Xanax. Confession time. This is a drug from heaven. If you've ever had anxiety, you know that's true because there are other medicines but if you take one of those within about four to six minutes, you feel great. And if you're in the middle of a very... Chronic anxiety attack, man. So the doctor said, Jeff, I know your personality. I don't have to worry about you getting addicted to this. And he's right. I want to beat it on my own. But he said, if you carry them around with you, the fact that your mind knows that you have that as a backup will give you the ability to overcome them. And it did. I carried them everywhere. So now that I'm over and I go back and I keep finding them in my bicycle, I find them in my car, everywhere. Most of us think, that's exactly what it's like for Jesus, because he had a backup. His life is not really like me. He could always go to his go-to, his God-like nature. And if you say that, it's because you don't understand kanao and what it really means, because before Jesus even left heaven, part of the agreement was he would set aside all the privileges associated with omnipresence, everywhere, omniscience, all-knowing, omnipotence, all-powerful God. He shut off all, all of those things. There was no reserve. So as a result, when we read the New Testament, you with me still? When we read the New Testament, we see him weeping over Jerusalem and the suffering of his people. Now that's a very human thing to do. We see him weep at Lazarus' tomb. We see him angry as he enters the temple where they've turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. We see him frustrated at the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You say, whoa, Pastor Jeff, yeah, those things may be real. However, let's not forget, he walked on water. He calmed the wind and the waves. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He healed the lame, the blind, the leper. Are you telling me that he gave up the privileges associated with being deity? Nice try. But Wait. Are you saying that God can't use men and women as a conduit to do miraculous things? Oh man, I wish we could just stop right here and preach another sermon. How do you explain the day of Pentecost? How do you explain the book of Acts? Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do, I have, or what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. How do you explain that? Acts chapter five, verse 12, the beginnings of the church. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as they passed by or as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. How do you explain that? I could go on and on, but you get the point. Or maybe you still need some help. So what do you read time and time again in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Here's what you read. And Jesus went up to pray. And Jesus removed himself a short distance to pray. And Jesus went on the mountainside to pray. And Jesus went to the garden to pray. What's happening? Why is he praying so much? Because he left those attributes in heaven. And the only way he's going to know what's going to happen, experience the power of God, is if he is so connected in relationship with God that he becomes a conduit through whom God can work to do miraculous things. Wait a minute, pastor. Are you saying that I can be used that way? Oh, oh, man. How do you explain Luke chapter 2, verse 52? And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. How do you grow in wisdom if you're God? if you set aside your omniscience in heaven before you came down. Don't you see, folks? God is capable of doing amazing things through you. He looks, the Bible tells us, his eyes roam the earth to see whose hearts are completely dedicated and devoted to him so that he might release his divine energy and his power into this world to do things you and I can't even imagine can be done. By a heart who's completely devoted to God. Think about it. Before Jesus called Lazarus from the dead, what did he do? I'm in John 11:38. 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? Verse 41. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. Now that tells me he's been praying the whole time. That's how he discovered what God was about to do. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, that the power that I'm about to exhibit comes from you. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, here's what we learn. Jesus was fully human and depended on his relationship with the Father to accomplish the Father's purposes in life, which was what? Redemption and revelation. So that the power of relationship and dependency on God through prayer and humility accomplished more than you and I could ever imagine. You see, here's the problem. We want power without the prayer. We want revival without relationship, and we want the Spirit without spit. You remember, if you like baseball like I do, I've just about quit watching everything else, but baseball, I love it when the batter spits on his hands and he gets in the batter's box. Even if he's got gloves on, he still spits. Maybe it's just left over from days gone by. But it shows us that he's ready. He's readying himself. And the Bible says we ready ourselves to be a conduit of God through prayer and relationship, getting our hands dirty in the dust that is gathered on our knees. Which is why Dallas Willard says grace is not opposed to effort, grace is opposed to earning. The Christian life still requires effort, but it's an effort. It's an investment that pays huge dividends. Now keep going. You okay? Okay. But the greater point is Jesus left it all. The wealth, the position, the power. What he gave up is unimaginable to us because you and I have never had what he had. And he did it all because he loves us, cares for us, identifies with us, and was willing to sacrifice whatever's necessary to redeem us. I go back to that passage in Hebrews 2 where we're told that he had to become like us in all ways. Wow. If he's been like me in all ways, he's got to be tempted in all ways. He can't use his foreknowledge to know what's going to happen because I can't. He can't use his omnipotence. We have no idea. Most of us can't imagine what Jesus truly gave up to come here. And here's the thing. What he really gave up is the most important thing to existence, human and divine. And it's the reason that when he went into the garden to pray that he stumbled. He saw something, as we've mentioned in the past, that caused him, that, that overwhelmed him, even to the point of having symptoms as if you are dying. It caused him to say, Father, I don't wanna do this. Yeah, in his humanity, we would expect that. I don't wanna do this. Is there another way? Can we, can we accomplish the same thing another way? And this seems somewhat out of place because history's inundated with records and testimonies of people who faced their deaths with incredible resolve and courage. But Jesus is afraid. He's overwhelmed to the point of death. Now, think for a moment. Existentially speaking, the greater the absence of sin in your life, the greater your closeness to God, subjectively. Now, objectively, I know we are at peace with God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But subjectively, the feeling that you have, you know when you're living your life in sin, you know you don't feel close to God. Jesus would have never known what that was like. The reason there is perfect unity within the Trinity is because there's no sin among God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's this constant, full-on intimacy in the presence of God in all eternity past. Jesus experiences, listen, have you ever, have you ever come to a time in your life when, man, you just feel the love and the joy of God? It's overwhelming. Might be in a worship service, might be you're out jogging, it could happen at any moment, any time, and don't you wish it would never go away, but it does, doesn't it? Not with Jesus. There's nothing to divide. And so for him to have that kind of a relationship, look, Bill Lane, his commentary on Mark says it better than I'm doing right now. Here's what he says. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering. It is rather the horror of one who lives wholly for the Father, who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open to him.
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Finds. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
1: The story God has been writing in all of history, in one word, is this word. And it's the word that you and I ought to be asking, is it present in our lives? And it's this, sacrifice. Sacrifice. He bases his appeal not on power. And the miraculous, he bases his appeal on sacrificial love. The entire story of the gospel is one of sacrifice.
0: You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines, wherever you listen to podcasts.